You're listening to Fighting Terror, a podcast that explores the approaches to fighting terror and extremism in the U.S., Europe, and worldwide. With Lucinda Creighton, Senior Europe Advisor to the Counter-Extremism Project and former Europe Minister. This podcast is brought to you by the Counter-Extremism Project, a research and advocacy group that combats the activities of terrorists and extremist groups globally. Hello and welcome. For today's podcast, I am delighted to be joined by Richard English. He's a professor of politics at Queen's University, Belfast. Between 2011 and 2016, Mr. English was a Wardlow Professor of Politics, School of International Relations, and Director of the Handa Centre for the Study of Terrorism and Political Violence at the University of St. Andrews. Mr. English's research and publications focus on the politics and history of nationalism, political violence and terrorism, with particular emphasis on Ireland and Britain. He's the author of eight books, including the award-winning studies, Armed Struggle, The History of the IRA, and Irish Freedom, The History of Nationalism in Ireland. His most recent book, Does Terrorism Work? A History, was published in 2016. Mr. English is a fellow of several internationally renowned institutions, and in 2018, he was awarded a CBE for services to the understanding of modern day terrorism and political history. Today's podcast will be dedicated to the subject of violence in Northern Ireland. We will speak about its origins, the current state of affairs, and hopefully try to answer how it could evolve in the future. So. Uh, Richard, I am really delighted to welcome you and thank you uh, again for joining us today. I would like to go straight into our discussion uh, and perhaps begin by asking you uh, to maybe paint the picture a little bit and give us some sense of the context for many of our listeners who may not be so familiar with the conflict in Northern Ireland, the sectarian divide between Protestants and Catholics. Could you give us a little bit of insight into its roots and origins? Thanks, Lucinda, and thank you for the invitation to take part in the podcast. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I wrote, a, as you say, a book on the IRA some years ago. One of my IRA interviewees said that you could only understand it by going back to the 12th century. I won't do that for listeners today. Uh, but let me make a number of points about the origins of the conflict in the North. The first thing is that it's in some ways a very familiar conflict in that it's about a conflict between rival nationalisms, which we see in much of the world, and particularly a conflict over the tension between nation and state. Broadly speaking, a significant number of those people who live in Northern Ireland from the nationalist community didn't in the 1960s think that the state of Northern Ireland was legitimate or fair, and many of them still hold that view. Whereas the unionists who represented a fairly clear majority in the 1960s, a more ambiguous majority now, felt that Northern Ireland's part of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland was entirely legitimate. So you had two communities which had different senses of the legitimacy of national identification. British unionists on the one hand, in the slight majority, Irish nationalists on the other. This was fueled by a historical attachment to different religions. So broadly speaking, the history of Irish nationalism had gained enormous strength in terms of grievance, in terms of organization, in terms of identity from its attachment to Catholic communities 
in Ireland, whereas the unionist community of the northeast was very much one that's identified with Protestantism, uh, not only as a series of denominations, but also as the, the religion which dominated in Britain. So you had this religiously fueled rival nationalisms. But in the 1960s, what you had, again, this is something familiar with many conflicts around terrorism and political violence, is certain triggers. In other words, those rival senses of legitimacy had existed from the foundation of Northern Ireland in the 20s right through to the late 60s. In the late 60s, you had I think entirely understandable mobilization from people in the Catholic nationalist community looking for fairer treatment, civil rights momentum. And there were some reforms introduced, but again, as you so often find, the reforms were too little too late for the nationalist Catholic community, or many of them within it, but too much and too fast for some within the dominant Protestant unionist community. So there was an acceleration of anger, of polarization, initial clashes between the two communities, a one-sided police force, very much a Protestant unionist police force in the 1960s. So you had a sense then that the polarization around these grievances led into greater and greater conflict. And then the other element, which again you see in many issues, is when a crisis emerges, how does the state respond? And in this case, rather clumsily, in the early 1970s, the British government responded in a rather heavy handed way, not as heavy handed, I think, as some states around the world would have done, but still with soldiers on the streets, who in some cases carried out appalling incidents, some of them fatal, including Bloody Sunday in 1972. So in a way, you have the long term roots of it, rival nationalisms, legitimacy of the state, is it legitimate? Some people say yes, some people say no, triggers with civil rights provoking, unintentionally provoking polarisation, and there then being the escalation from a situation where in 1968, no one's killed in the troubles, 1972, nearly 500 people are killed in the Troubles, which for a small population of about a million and a half is a huge number. And part of that is also the way particularly the UK state responds, although there were other state interventions and uh, attitudes which didn't help as well. So long-term routes, certain particular triggers, activists on all sides getting involved, clumsy state response. And by the early 1970s, you've got a crisis which is up and running and tragically self-fueling as it does for a number of decades. Mm. Well, thank you for that very um, concise but very comprehensive overview. And I think, as you say, it, it does reflect a lot of conflicts. I mean, there's commonality, I guess, with many of the conflicts that we would be familiar with around the world. From your own perspective, you were born in Belfast, I think, in the early 1960s. So I'm interested to understand a little bit about your background and what motivated you to get involved in analysing terrorism and political violence. Uh, for once, it was my mother's fault. My mother was from Belfast and uh, I was born in Belfast and her parents, her father was a Dubliner and her mother was from Belfast. But as my accent indicates, I grew up in England. We used to come and visit, particularly in Belfast, but other parts of Ireland too, relatives during my childhood. So while I grew up in England, we were back and forward a lot to Northern Ireland in particular, but to other parts of Ireland. And then when I was a student at Oxford in the mid 80s, I was very interested in the tensions between nationalism and Marxism, and I wanted a case study. And so the case study I chose was the case study of Ireland and the IRA of the 20th century and the tension between Irish nationalism and Marxist or socialist ideology. So I had this kind of interest in the place. I had a sense and a knowledge that although what you saw in England on the news about Northern Ireland was almost always negative, I knew from visits that that was not the full story at all. And although on the news you often saw presentations which presented it as a kind of incomprehensible gangsterism or even presented it as a tribal thing. I knew from 
even from visits as a, as a child and, and following it in that family connected way, that there were things going on which were the really important things, rival identities, notions of nationalism, profound and understandable rival attachments, and that the awful violence that you saw on the streets and that we saw on family holidays when increasingly soldiers were involved on the streets and so forth, that these were really the symptoms of something more interesting and more powerful. So when I got interested in it as a student, I then became, became hooked on Irish history and politics, um, came to work at Queen's University Belfast in 1989, and for most of my career, have been here. And it's been a privilege to be so because of the extraordinary richness of what you're seeing going around you. And because there's been world historical change in the conflict over that period from the late 1980s through into the early 21st century. So it was really a family connection, coupled with intellectual interest in major themes, and then becoming to some extent addicted to this as an exemplar of really important world historical themes. That makes a lot of sense. You you clearly have a curiosity about the ideology that drives, I suppose, the political aspects of the movements. You've you've written extensively on the IRA, and I think when people from other parts of the world think of the conflict in Northern Ireland, probably the IRA is the organization that they are most familiar with. How would you define the ideology and the motivations of the IRA, how it was organized and structured and so on? I think the way to begin with is to recognise the IRA as a vanguard nationalist movement. Uh, So I've argued in my books that I think nationalism is about the politics of community struggle and power, about a community defined by the nation in terms of territory, people, descent, culture, history and so forth. But also that nationalism is about that community struggling to maintain power if it's got it and to achieve power if it hasn't. And the IRA, throughout its, its long history in various different iterations, the Provisional IRA, which was the main organisation active during the, the Northern Ireland Troubles, that organisation really was struggling to achieve what it saw as the rightful Irish national self-determination, which it thought was denied by the partition of Ireland and by British sovereignty over the six counties of the North. So the first thing I would start about with the IRA wouldn't be to talk about the violence in a way, but we'd talk about the nationalism from which the violence seems to emerge. Related to that is a second thing, which is that I've interviewed a lot of people who've been involved in the IRA as in other aspects of the Northern conflict. And despite the extraordinary and brutal nature of the violence carried out, it's the great normality of the people concerned that is the really striking thing. In other words, these are normal people who feel that their nation has been denied rights and who, in my view, wrongly, feel that violence was going to be a legitimate and effective way of pursuing those rights. And in that, they're quite natural in that all around the world, there are lots of people who believe that violence in defense of your national rights is a legitimate thing. How were they organized? It was a a small army, increasingly organized in very local centers of gravity. It managed to sustain a campaign against a significant West European state, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, for a generation. It focused primarily on doing what made it distinctive, which is what they called armed struggle. The idea that you had to be the cutting edge of the movement to try and end partition, to try and achieve a united island, to try and drive the agenda. But even from the early years, the Provisional IRA was founded at the end of 1969. And even from the early years, it was clearly a movement with a political argument. They argued that Irish national self-determination required the ending of partition, the ending of British rule in Ireland, and that that would be the basis for a just settlement of what had become the violent conflict. So they were an aggressive movement. Um, They uh, were responsible for more deaths than any other group in the Northern Ireland conflict. They were determined to carry out violence in ways which were as with all terrorist groups, actually, 
merciless when they felt it was the necessary thing to do. Many of the victims who were killed were civilians. Many of the victims who were killed, even if they weren't civilians, were defenseless at the point of of death. And so as with the loyalist paramilitaries from the Protestant unionist community on the other side, and as with some of the violence by the British forces, this was a cruel conflict. It was a cruel conflict. The IRA were well enough organised to sustain themselves. I don't believe that they ended their campaign having been completely defeated. I don't think they won, but they weren't driven off the field, if you like. So in other words, they were able to sustain a clandestine campaign against the UK in ways that involved violence, but also supporting politics. They had a political wing, Sinn Féin, which articulated their arguments in ways that meant that the political case was always visible for those who wanted to see it. And I would see them as one of the main durable non-state violent actors. Terrorism is a contentious term, but I think you could legitimately apply it here. And one of the main organisations that maintained political violence against a state for what they thought was a justifiable cause of national liberation. And then I suppose the likely lesser known loyalist paramilitary groups, the UVF, the UDA and several others, would you define their ideology as being sort of the polar opposite then of the provisional IRA? What are the driving factors in, in the creation and sustaining those organizations and they still exist today which is something again that people may not be so familiar with it's a really important point lucinda because you know a couple of decades now after the 1998 good friday or belfast agreement which effectively provided the basis for ending the northern Ireland conflict the Ulster volunteer force the uvf and the Ulster defense association the uda certainly do exist and are still able to exert considerable muscle within the areas in which they have great influence as ever in in northern ireland things are asymmetrical so I think you're right to say they're polar opposites in that the UDA and the UVF represented a kind of vanguard wing of British nationalism. If the IRA's violence was to try and put pressure on the UK state to end partition and leave Northern Ireland, loyalist violence was trying to put pressure on the British state uh, and on Irish nationalists to maintain Northern Ireland's place within the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So in that sense, there was a symmetry of rival nationalisms, but I think otherwise they were asymmetrical. Um, Loyalists killed a significant number of people, again, in cruel and merciless circumstances, but killed fewer than Republicans. Loyalists were pro-state terrorists. They were on occasions in collusive relationship with some wings of the state, though I don't think that primarily explains them. Many of them were imprisoned by the state, and although they acted in defence of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, the legitimate forces of that state of the UK tried to imprison them and incarcerate them and incarcerated many of them. So they're a pro-state terrorist organisation trying to maintain Northern Ireland's place with the UK. They still exist now and they've shifted significantly away from the inter-communal violence that we saw in the Troubles between the two main communities here. I'm speaking from Belfast and Troubles, there was a lot of inter-communal violence, but also a lot of intra-communal violence. Now, loyalist violence, much of it related to criminality, uh, would be more within the community. And although they still exist, for the most part, they've not been involved in violence against the nationalist community or violence uh, in defence of Northern Ireland because Northern Ireland's place has seemed secure. The only coda to that would be that now that, again, there is some greater sense of potential fluidity politically and maybe some sense for some people of a greater threat to Northern Ireland's place within the United Kingdom, there have been noises rumbling from some loyalist groups to the effect that they've are prepared to act if they feel again that they're going to be driven out of the UK. So just as the IRA wanted to drive the British out of Northern Ireland by putting pressure on them, the loyalists wanted to make clear that they would defend Northern Ireland's place within the UK and make it very difficult for the UK to leave because they said, well, we could take over parts of Belfast, for example, they could 
they could exert such violence that if Britain did decide to leave Northern Ireland, there'd be some kind of civil war erupting here. So there were two sets of paramilitary groups putting equal and opposite pressure, if you like, or perhaps not equal pressure, but opposite pressure on the UK state during and now beyond the Troubles. A unique factor, I suppose, is, and you've alluded to the relationship between some of the loyalist paramilitary groups and the state and in Northern Ireland throughout the conflict, you know, government forces were involved in committing some atrocities to a certain extent. You mentioned Bloody Sunday earlier. The British state was accused of committing extrajudicial killings. Bally Murphy is one which has been in the headlines relatively recently, even though it occurred all those years ago. How did that impact on the dynamic in Northern Ireland at the time? And what is the legacy of that relationship with the state today? Again, it's a really important issue. I mean, I think the first thing to stress is that the murder of people has to be addressed as something which is equally heinous, whether it's by Republican paramilitaries, loyalist paramilitaries, or a British soldier. I mean, it seems to me that that's an important moral basis. So one aspect of what you're describing is that where there were instances of extrajudicial killings, where there were instances of collusion, they should be identified and the people who were the perpetrators should be pursued because it's, you know, it's an outrage for liberal democracy to allow that to happen. I think a second point is that it's also one of those things, and again, there's an echo here with much counter-terrorism around the world. One of the things which makes it more difficult for states to counter terrorism is when the state does things that seem to legitimate the arguments of their opponents. Now, if you're in the IRA, if you're in the Republican community, and your argument is that the UK state is hostile to you, that the UK state is a state which doesn't have your interests, if people from within that community see soldiers shooting unarmed people in Derry, that rather seems to confirm the IRA's argument. And I think one of the issues around legacy is that the United Kingdom has to deal with the fact that, as in other parts of the UK's history around the world, it has to be said, there are things which are very ugly. And where they are, bringing out some sense of truth and justice, though appropriate, also shines a light on some of the unseemly aspects of the UK's history. So my sense is that legacy is really important because I think that everybody who was killed during the Troubles deserves not only to know what happened, but also to have a sense of justice for their loved ones or for themselves if they've been maimed. But also it seems to me that for the United Kingdom, it's an important part of trying to sustain a fair, a just, a lastingly peaceful arrangement in this part of the world to say, look, you know, whoever is a victim, we need to respect the victimhood of that person. And whoever the perpetrator was, we need to address that as something which is going to be recognised as an atrocity, whether it's a soldier, an IRA volunteer, or a member of the UVF that's carried it out. But it has been and remains a lasting problem. Yeah, I mean, we'll come on to the Good Friday Agreement, which is perhaps I'm biased, but I think it's one of the best peace agreements that we have seen internationally. But it's not without its problems and challenges, as we as we still know today. It feels to me that there was more of an emphasis on that sort of peace and reconciliation attitude and approach in the run-up to and in the immediate aftermath of the Good Friday Agreement. Do you think maybe the focus has come off that a little bit from the point of view of the British government in particular? And does that pose a risk to the agreement itself? I think it's a huge issue. The achievement of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, as you say, is an enormous achievement and somewhat taken for granted by some people now as if it was inevitable, which it clearly wasn't. And it took an enormous amount of relationship building between the Irish and UK states, between leading politicians, John Major and Albert Reynolds, Bertie Hearn and Tony Blair, but also Tony Blair's chief of staff, Jonathan Powell, built up a strong 
working relationship with people like the IRA's ex-chief of staff, Martin McGuinness. So there was a strong investment by people. I think one of the difficulties is that because people have somewhat taken the peace for granted, they've lost a bit of interest in Northern Ireland. So a lot of people, for example, in Britain, when things become slightly fractious in Northern Ireland, they're almost surprised as if there was a notion that everyone now got on well with each other in Northern Ireland, that it had, it had gone away as a problem. And I think one of the issues that it is a risk is that if, if the government of the state of which Northern Ireland is a part loses interest in it, there's a danger that taking the eye off the ball will make a big difference. So in, in two ways, I think that's really important recently. One is, despite what David Cameron says in his huge autobiography, there wasn't much attention paid in the run-up to the Brexit referendum of 2016 to the implications for Northern Ireland, and that's continued to be an issue now in all sorts of different ways. But the other thing is, I think that the Good Friday Agreement was always part of a process. It wasn't the end point. It needed relationships to be continuing to be built, and people needed to keep the investment going to try and make sure that the peace possibility was one that was fulfilled. And I think some of the energy around Good Friday has dissipated, and some of the relationships between unionist and nationalist politicians in the North in recent times have become visibly much colder. And I think, therefore, a peace process like the Good Friday one, or the one of which Good Friday was a significant part, is something which needs continually to be nurtured. In some ways, I think the peace process needs to go on at least as long as the war process, if you're going to get success. And so I think actors not just in the North, but in Dublin, in London, in, in, in the wider political community, need to attend to it if they're going to make sure that it's something that endures. I don't think we can take it for granted. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And, you know, uh, having served in the Irish government uh, a number of years ago, I, I think I can say hand in heart that it's not a deliberate moving away from concern for Northern Ireland, but simply it just hasn't been a priority because things have moved on, as you say, I think. Um, peace has been taken for granted to some extent. You have authored a really interesting book entitled Does Terrorism Work? A History. And I, I think even the title itself probably poses a bit of a moral quandary. But if you analyse um, the IRA campaign in Northern Ireland uh, throughout the, the Troubles, I mean, can, can it be deemed by their own standards to have been a success? Did it achieve the, the goals that the organisation set out to achieve? Yeah, you're, you're quite right. I mean, when, when I wrote the book, I thought it was initially surprising that people hadn't written more books like this. But when I'd finished writing it, I knew why, because it's, of course, a question which is going to annoy everybody, whatever your answer comes up with. Because if you say it does work, then people are outraged. If you say it doesn't, then people say, well, you know, look at this example, look at that example. My argument would be that we need to distinguish, I suppose, between strategic success and partial strategic success and tactical successes. So I think the strategic headline goals of the IRA were ending partition, producing a united Ireland, and defending Catholics in the north from attack, whether from loyalists or the security services. And when they ended their campaign officially in 2005, they hadn't achieved that. So at one level, you could say, well, no, it didn't work. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, they had many tactical successes. I mean, they managed to keep operating against the UK, as I mentioned uh, earlier on, in ways that had some significant threats, not just in Northern Ireland, but you know, bombs in England, which made a significant financial dent and, and also some high profile targets, including people like Lord Mountbatten and so forth, and coming near to killing the then Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher in 1984. So there were tactical successes. I think also most organisations don't achieve their headline strategic goals. And you could say that the IRA managed through their violence to do 
some other things like sustained resistance to British rule in the north. They made the issue unavoidably high profile, and they would argue that they therefore determined the agenda and put pressure on people to achieve reform. And they also managed when the peace deal came and in the aftermath of the peace deal, their political party, through the pressure that the IRA had managed to wield and the leverage that they had, became a, a you know, Sinn Féin is now the dominant nationalist party in the north. So in some ways, it seems to me there were diluted strategic goals that they did reach in terms of secondary goal of revenge against enemies, sustaining resistance, defining the agenda. So as I would argue that in terms of their headline goals, United Ireland defending Catholics, they did not achieve those. And I suppose overall violent actions, whether by loyalists, the British state or Republicans like the IRA, there's also the question of whether what you've achieved is sufficient to justify the costs that it undoubtedly incurred. And I suppose my broad argument, whichever of the actors we're talking about, the IRA, the loyalists or the parachute regiment, my argument would be that we could have achieved not only this, but something much better if on all sides there'd been a pursuit of compromise earlier on rather than the pursuit of victory. I think in, as, as so often in human behaviour, people exaggerate the likelihood of violence working. And I think here, probably on all sides, there was an exaggeration of the efficacy of violence. And probably we've arrived at a, a slightly sullen cold peace now, which, where we could perhaps have pursued compromise much earlier on in ways that could have achieved a much better experience for people in Northern Ireland, for people in Ireland, for people in these islands. Much that was there in the 1990s deal, I think, was on offer in the 70s or even before that, actually, if people had wanted to take things in, in less of a would-be victorious approach and more a sense that you have to kind of cut your losses and make a deal. Yeah, and I mean, look, the dynamics of those efforts to achieve peace in the 70s and 80s were entrenched in London, in Dublin, as well as in Belfast. So I think there was certainly fault in many quarters. The Good Friday Agreement, as you are very well familiar, has been described as Sunningdale for slow learners, which was the, the putative deal from many, many years before. So that point about no one coming out of it with clean hands is a really important point because yeah. we've mainly here been discussing the IRA and as I say they killed more people than anyone else in the conflict and I think that's an important thing to discuss loyalist paramilitaries who've mentioned but I, I, I think both the UK and Irish states could have behaved much earlier on in ways that were collaborative I think some people looking from a long distance away including some Irish Americans in the United States took a view which was sometimes simplistic and sometimes fueled violence and I think quite often people looked at Northern Ireland in ways which didn't make it easy for anyone and, and so, so, some so politicians who weren't violent politicians still were inflammatory politicians i think the reverend paisley a very able politician uh, but his rhetoric made it more difficult for people to carry out compromise so i think when you look at it no one comes out of this cleanly and in that sense i think humility about the past is probably a, an appropriate position to adopt here rather than people being triumphalist one way or the other so i hope that's coming through in something of what i'm saying yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think I agree. I think it's a really important point. And, you know, politics was being played in all quarters, I think, at that time. And interesting when you mentioned Reverend Eden Paisley, I mean, his commitment to the peace process ultimately was hugely important. But of course, his party, the DUP, opposed the Good Friday Agreement. Um, so that's an important, I suppose, piece of history and part of the context as well. And maybe that brings us then to the present day. And when I look at Northern Ireland, when I visit Northern Ireland, I still find a, a very deeply divided society. You know, children are educated according to their religious denomination by and large. Politics is still very much determined by uh, national allegiance and religion, as, as you outlined at the, at the beginning, in terms of the motivating factors behind the various paramilitary and dissident organizations. So, you know, how do you assess 
the situation in Northern Ireland now, you know, how far have we come since 1998 and uh, where is there room for improvement? I think your analysis is exactly right that what we have is something like peace without reconciliation. Uh, And I think that in many parts of the world, sometimes when I'm giving lectures in other parts of the world, I say this, people say, well, where we are, peace without reconciliation would be great because at least it would be peace. So I think we shouldn't underestimate the achievement of a largely non-violent set of divided relationships, but they are divided. I mean, in terms of where people live, in terms of people's attitudes about the past, the present and the future, in terms still overwhelmingly of things like marriage and things like schooling, to some extent also some sports as well. So it's in a very divided society. I personally think wherever there's a door that opens to some kind of empathy between the communities, I think we should push that door open. And there is a lot of work being done. There's a lot of grassroots work being done. And there are some areas where it's easier to find alignment than others. And I think the fact that those are only part of the story doesn't mean you shouldn't go with them. So for example, where there is some collaboration around something to do with sport, which can be cross community, which can bring people together, it can be the basis for achieving relationships, which might then feed into other things afterwards. The second thing is, as often in Northern Ireland, Social class and social deprivation is a big part of the story, but it's not one that gets the headlines. So I think if you're looking at how someone who's born in Northern Ireland experiences Northern Ireland, in terms of education, in terms of health, in terms of jobs, in terms of wealth, in terms of violence even, social deprivation and social class is a really big aspect of this. And I think one of the unfortunate things in regard to Northern Ireland is that um, some of the areas where the violence was most intense have also been some of the areas where unemployment lack of education, uh, now increasingly drug-related problems have become most intense. And so I think attention in the future to opening the doors to empathetic relationships where we can, but also not avoiding the fact that social disadvantage, as across most of the world, is a really massive problem. It seems to me to be one of the big issues. And I think because rightly, we tend to focus on the issue of unionism versus nationalism or the constitutional question. Those social issues can be somewhat occluded. And I think quite often you've got a a greater difficulty because of social disadvantage. And I think therefore issues around jobs, issues around education, issues around health, those are all things which we really need to address. I hope that possibly after this wretched pandemic, people attend to the ways in which even something like a virus is refracted through certain kinds of social opportunities globally and within rich nations too and tries to do something about that. And that would certainly be of help in the future in Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. Interesting, I should say at this stage, the Counter Extremism Project very proudly sponsored a community-based grassroots endeavour called Digital Engage, bringing together young people from both sides of the divide. And I think it was a really successful and very positive experience. So we very much support the idea of trying to open those doors uh, and bring together Uh, particularly young people from disadvantaged communities from both sides of the divide. But I digress. I suppose one of the things that that struck me in looking at some of the issues in Northern Ireland is the fact that there are still 14 terrorist organisations active in Northern Ireland at present. I think that that is something that is probably news to most people and quite shocking. How active and engaged are those organisations and should we be worried about them as a growing threat or are they simply a legacy from the pre-Good Friday Agreement period? The so I think on the Republican side, the main organisation of concern to people would be an organisation sometimes referred to as the new IRA, but really just thinks of itself as the IRA because it considers itself to be continuous. 
And although they don't have large scale support and although their campaign is at nothing like the level that the provisional IRA was able to sustain, and they have nothing like the political support that the Republicans of the provisional movement did, they are still occasionally lethal. And they are still trying to carry out violence, which undermines the current dispensation, which maintains resistance into the future, and ultimately, which contributes towards the ending of British rule in Northern Ireland. So that's one area of concern. It's a smaller flame than the provisional IRA, but it still has occasional lethality. My sense of where the biggest risk would lie would be with loyalist organisations, particularly with the UVF and the UDA. And I suppose partly the anxiety there is that these are still quite large organisations, they're still recruiting organisations. And although they've shifted into criminality, much of that criminality is related to things which themselves have tremendously destructive capacity. So drug-related criminality, for example, um, control over certain parts of certain working class areas in Northern Ireland, which feeds into social spirals of of disintegration as well. But also if you did have a situation in the future where it looks like a border poll in Northern Ireland might be about to yield a majority in favour of ending Northern Ireland's part of the United Kingdom, uh, unless you get rid of paramilitary capacity, you're likely to have the possibility of greater inflammation. I don't believe we've got the basis for returning to the 1970s and 1980s levels of violence in Northern Ireland. I don't think the mixture of factors, that multi-causality is there. But there are certainly loyalist organisations, some of whose members would feel that if they were going to be driven out of the UK against their wishes, they should resort to violence and would have the capacity to do so. So in some ways, it seems to me that for the UK government, also for the Irish government, it seems to me to be something which is a priority to think, how do you get rid of the remnants of paramilitarism? And how do you try and make sure that that flame isn't burning significantly enough to cause problems in the future? And if we think, for example, of how messy, how protracted, how complicated, how tense and how difficult the UK leaving the European Union has proved, which was overwhelmingly a peaceful process, had a peaceful background to it and largely was peaceful. The idea, of, for example, of Northern Ireland leaving the UK and becoming part of some post-British state where they've got the long history of violence and here at the moment the capacity of violent groups would seem to raise serious problems. So I suppose it's not just a remnant. I, mean, I don't think we're going back to the troubles, but I don't think we've entirely left them in terms of some of those organisations. And I personally think major priority is to put together a strategy whereby really both governments working together try to make Northern Ireland a place within which armed paramilitary groups become merely residual, where you have only a tiny, tiny fragment, which would then make any kind of political, either sustenance of Northern Ireland's part in the UK or a change to the arrangements would make it possible without the prospect of bloodshed returning. Mm-hmm. You certainly have the impression that uh, both governments probably have not prioritised that threat. And certainly I would imagine in the case of the British government very much preoccupied by the Islamist terrorist threat in GB and probably less with Northern Ireland. And perhaps that'll have to be recalibrated, um, especially given events in recent months. Just in terms of, I think it'd be, it'd be interesting to gauge the sort of the public opinion around this as opposed to the political views. So I mean, how successful are these groups at recruiting, at generating sympathy amongst the public? I mean, are they pariahs? Are they parent to the vast majority of Northern Irish citizens? Or as things have become more tense in recent times, are they succeeding in recruiting more people? So they've managed to recruit. They've not recruited at a large enough scale to pose anything like the kind of threat which organisations in the worst years of the conflict were able to do. Overwhelmingly, the population of Northern Ireland tends not to give them endorsement. And partly that's because people feel that one of the lessons, perhaps, of the Northern Ireland conflict was that 
paramilitary violence wasn't going to bring victory, but would bring misery. So I think there is still a sense that that's not the way forward. Having said that, with an intensification of polarised views in the North, and particularly, I think, with with nationalist disaffection after Brexit, because understandably, most nationalists in the North wanted to remain in the EU, driven out of the EU against their wishes, the possibility for a time of the Irish border becoming reintroduced as an issue, there was nationalist anger. So there was therefore not sympathy for dissident Republican groups like the, like the IRA that I refer to, the new IRA, but certainly a greater sense that you could understand where they were coming from. And you could see that in some of the opinion poll evidence. Similarly, on the unionist side, most unionists would consider loyalist groups to be criminal gangs that should stop. On the other hand, if you said to people, you know, do you think it's fair that Northern Ireland should be have a sort of half border with the rest of the UK, or do you think Northern Ireland should be driven out? There will be a sense of increased understanding of where anger comes from. So they're not gaining majority support or anything like it within their own communities. Most people would consider that their violence was entirely unacceptable. Having said that, the kind of flags which they would be picking up if they were marching are ones which a lot of people on both sides would feel to be more justified or more understandable the more things become polarised. And I think going back to our conversation about the Good Friday episode, one of the crucial things I think in all of this is that relationships between the UK and Ireland are fruitful and harmonious, and that's been more difficult because of Brexit, it would have to be said, but also that relationships between the non-violent political parties, you know, the parties that are sharing power at Stormont, become more constructive and more openly constructive than has been the case in recent times. Because one thing we do know from Northern Ireland is that the greater you have polarisation, the more space there is for people to say that violence is a justifiable thing. And even if people don't support it, they maybe have a slight sense that the grievance is understandable, maybe even turn a blind eye to some things. And we want to avoid that kind of sliding back into violent possibility here, if at all possible. Yeah, I suppose a related question then is, what is the relationship between the political parties in Northern Ireland and some of these groups? I mean, we know traditionally Sinn Féin was the political arm of the IRA, and there was no secret in that. The smaller dissident Republican groups uh, connected to Thera, and that I think is something that has become more more in evidence in recent years. How would you assess those ties to political parties in Northern Ireland? And again, is that something that we should be concerned about? So, yeah, interestingly, as you say, the currently vibrant paramilitary groups don't have large-scale political wings. So there's no analogue to the way that Sinn Féin towards the 1990s was a serious force. It wasn't in those earlier periods getting majority nationalist support, but it was getting significant nationalist support. Now, Sinn Féin would be seen by dissident Republicans as having betrayed the cause and having been too compromising. So ironically, Sinn Féin would very much be one of the targets of hatred of dissident Republicans. Uh, And I think there's no likelihood of dissident Republicans gaining political weight, which would rival Sinn Féin. I think Sinn Féin are are going to remain dominant within that Republican community. On the loyalist side, one of the problems there has been, I think, in the peace process is that there was no analogue of Sinn Féin. In other words, if you're trying to get people who've been in the UVF, in the UDA, in those movements to become involved in some more peaceful, some more ironic kind of politics, there's not a Sinn Féin space into which they can go. Their own political parties have been largely trivial in terms of their political weight. And the relationship between loyalist paramilitaries and the mainstream unionist parties, the Ulster Unionist Party, or even the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party, have been tense and fractious rather than harmonious. So in some ways, one of the difficulties is that for the loyalists in particular, there's not a political route which is legitimate for them easily to 
transmogrify into. So I suppose what I would be looking for always in these kinds of contexts is that if you, like myself, argue that largely terrorist violence doesn't achieve its main goals, you also have to try and say, well, what are the routes which are non-violent, which enable you to achieve your main goals? And there, I think that some sense of respecting the causes of loyalist disaffection and respecting some of the social economic problems, which are hard hitting in the areas where all of these groups tend to get their main support would be important. The worst thing you can do is neglect why it's happening and pretend it's not existing. And I think for a long time now, the London government has thought that Northern Ireland was sorted until Brexit, and has now not really been able to make significant progress since then in terms of addressing the problems. I think that both the London and the Dublin governments working together could do a lot to try and suggest that there are political ways of reaching compromise. It's also important for people to be realistic. You're not going to get an easy solution now to a post-EU Northern Ireland, because you know if you try and get Northern Ireland into the Republic of Ireland's orbit as a part of an all-island state, there's going to be tension to achieve that, certainly. On the other hand, it's not possible just to pretend that you can't have a border with the EU. There's got to be some sort of border with the EU. and It's, it's either broadly going to be in the Irish Sea or it's going to be on the land border, and both of those have huge problems. So people, I think, have to recognise, as they did in the 1990s, you don't get everything you want, but getting some kind of compromise which you can trust is the least worst option. And I think that's where we need intervention. Possibly also, as in the 1990s, there might be an opportunity for some more assertive US intervention. I mean, Senator George Mitchell played a significant role in terms of the facilitation of a deal in the 90s, and President Clinton's interest undoubtedly did make a contribution. And it might be then in relation to the current regime in Washington, there's an opportunity for some international input as well, which might help to jolt things a bit. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, we're, we're now fully in the orbit of talking about Brexit and it's just no denying it has coloured events in Northern Ireland, not just in the last few months uh, since the Northern Ireland Protocol came into being, but really since 2016, since the referendum, if you look at the fact that there was really no impetus to get the Northern Ireland executive back in place for a, a period of two years. And we have certainly seen the orchestration of quite an amount of violence on the streets from both sides in uh, in the past few years, including the tragic murder of a journalist in Derry, uh, Lyra McKee. So this has been sort of bubbling and has been visible, I think, and understood by most. So, I mean, it, it's difficult to put a square peg into a circle. And that is sort of the, the situation that Northern Ireland finds itself in now. Um, I don't want to get into solutions around the Northern Ireland Protocol because we could be here all day. But but I am curious to hear a little bit more about your thinking about the role for uh, the United States. We did see under the Trump administration Mick Mulvaney's appointment. He did show a commitment. There were a lot of Irish Americans in the last administration and a lot of Irish Americans, not least the president himself in this administration. I mean, who would have thought that Northern Ireland would be such a topic in, uh, you know, at the G7 summit in Cornwall or on the margins of the NATO summit as well. So, I mean, Northern Ireland is front and centre. Is that an opportunity now, perhaps, to sort out some of these legacy issues from the Belfast Agreement? Or what do you think about that? I think that the best way of approaching it would be to try and fold in a whole series of things into one kind of progress, because that enables one of the crucial things in the peace process, which is that no one can be seen to lose face. And I think, therefore, people need to be able to say, well, you know, you don't like this thing that we've just agreed to, and we understand why we don't like it either. But we had to agree to that in order to get this precious thing, which you've got. And in a sense, I remember in the peace process period, as 
as you will, that there was the sort of politics of the comma that you say, on the one hand, this comma, but on the other hand, that comma, but on the other hand, this comma. And there's so many commas, you almost didn't know quite where you were by the <laughs> end of it, except that everybody was able to say, well, we got these things. And, and I think that was a huge achievement. And in that, the 1998 Belfast Good Friday Agreement had a much higher mountain to climb in that it was trying to bring an end to a seemingly unending violent conflict. What we've got now in some ways is a smaller challenge, I think, although it's still significant. And it seems to me, therefore, the best way to do it would be to imagine 15, 16 issues and try and get enough so that everyone feels they can say, well, look, we've got this for you, we've got this for you, and they have to give on that. Some of it, I think, is about minimising the practical damage. So, for example, with stuff coming in and out of Northern Ireland from Britain, there are ways of getting the queues to be shorter and ways of getting the number of checks to be smaller, as long as people want to address it at that kind of pragmatic level. But I think it also has to be tied to an outcome which doesn't seem to humiliate people. I mean, my own view would be that from a unionist perspective for the DUP, for example, Brexit clearly created difficulties in that the main thing that will sustain the union of Northern Ireland with Great Britain is that enough people from the nationalist community are sympathetic to it. And Brexit clearly was going to undermine that. And there's no mystery about it. But having made that choice, they can't now turn around and say, well, Brexit's a bad idea. So I think what has to happen now is that they have to be able to gain the benefits of Brexit as they would see it, some of them, I think, symbolic, in ways that mean that they're not humiliated by whatever turns out to be the resolution. There, I think US involvement can be very significant because the US is a much bigger player globally than either Ireland or the United Kingdom. It has extraordinary economic capacity. And it has broad goodwill, not just to Ireland, but it has broad goodwill towards the idea that Ireland's turned out better than people thought it would in terms of the Northern Ireland conflict. There's a sense that someone once said to me when I was doing a discussion of peace processes, you know, if Afghanistan turned out like Northern Ireland, people would be so pleased. You know, there are ways in which you can look at conflicts which are much more difficult to resolve. And the Northern Ireland one is a, a kind of beacon of hope. So in that sense, I think some investment by the US, I mean, the difficulty is that in the 1990s, to the extent that the EU was involved, you had these two EU states, the UK and Ireland, dealing with each other quite amicably around a lot of shared things, and Northern Ireland became one of them, whereas now, of course, the EU has become a, a point of contention. But it doesn't have to be a huge point of contention. It could be something where you're dealing with practical problems. So could the US be involved? I think it could. Would that sometimes enable a comprehensive deal to have some muscle behind it internationally? Yes, it would. Sometimes also, I think, getting people to discuss these things outside the immediacy of where they are physically. Once after COVID, people can more easily travel around. Some of the discussions can happen elsewhere and can be hosted by even by you know, the regime of the President of the United States. So I think there are practical ways of dealing with it. But the main thing is that everybody seems to get something which they can give to their own community and that nobody's humiliated. I think that's one of the big lessons of the peace process was that respecting people's dignity was one of the ways of getting the practical support for things that could then be implemented on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that idea of actually physically, you know, getting people out of their bubble could be a very potent and um, positive move when the restrictions on travel, et cetera, are, uh, are finally lifted. That's something that may indeed be explored in due course. I think maybe just to wrap up, because we've covered a lot, and I think you've given some really, really interesting insights in terms of the, the origins of the conflict, but also the sort of state of play now. And with that Brexit context, which is unavoidable, it's just, it, it's a fact of life now in terms of trying to resolve some of these issues. As we said, perhaps a, an impetus to, to, to actually go and do it. But I mean, those sectarian divisions in Northern Ireland, which are political, but they're also community, they're also educational, as we discussed, religious, etc. I mean, what are the sort of initiatives that could really kickstart that process of, of, I suppose, a more integrated 
you talked earlier about you know peace without reconciliation how do we bring that reconciliation peace into it for those who remember the conflict and are still scarred by it but also for the younger generation who didn't know it and and aren't really part of that history they're shaped by it but they don't recall it you know what would your recommendations be for those next steps it's it's a difficult question because it's obviously a difficult set of problems to crack i suppose a couple of things that would occur to me i mean what one is that it is much easier to find some kind of empathy with people you disagree with if you don't feel threatened in terms of your own identity or your own economic well-being so it seems to me that to the extent that there can be some sense of respect for identities being axiomatic so I, i think in the peace process you know when irish republican politicians began on occasions to wear the poppy around remembrance day it was a legitimate thing to do for all sorts of reasons not least because lots of catholic irish people had died in the british forces in the wars but it's also something which signaled to unionists actually we're getting a bit of respect here and i think sometimes those gestures can have lasting effects in building trust. So I think things where even seemingly trivial things like going to a sports match which you wouldn't normally go to, going to a cultural occasion you wouldn't normally go to, handshakes, these kind of things. So I think symbolic things which show that you're respecting the other person's identity can be significant and I think the more of that we get the better. And I think also making sure that you know after covid there is going to be an economic set of consequences which can be quite damaging for a lot of people, making sure we don't descend into sheer vulnerability for people because you need to make the conditions in which you feel empathetic more possible. I think the the second thing is that I think quite a lot of the time what I would call exemplary relationships across the boundaries can make a big difference. I think it was extraordinary when Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness seemed to get on pretty well together. And although we, we know both of them were acting partly out of pragmatism, and I respect that completely, there was also slightly more to it than that, I think. And I think that made it easier for people who came from the communities which they were loudly, aggressively representing to feel that some kind of step towards trust was more possible and i think there any gesture which involves those kind of responsibility figures making significant relationship creating relationship sustaining gestures is something which is really important and there i think actually politicians haven't always done us favors in the last few years and i think some of the politics around brexit has been somewhat polarizing and simplistic i'm afraid and what i would like to see would be people with a greater sense of relationship building and empathy signaling and also to make sure that the economy doesn't collapse completely because if that does then that pushes people into a more great sense of vulnerability and identity might mean even more to them in those precarious circumstances so i would see the situation as one where you know it's a much lesser set of hurdles we face now than if we'd been having this conversation in 1991 and i remember in the early 1990s when the oslo process in the middle east was going well people were saying oh well the oslo process can go well but it could never happen in ireland i remember people saying that could never happen in northern ireland whereas now everyone says well that 1998 agreement in northern ireland that was always going to happen but it could never happen in israel palestine you know these things are contingent rather than inevitable but it's up to us to decide do we want to have a, a reconciliatory process do we want to build trust do we want to build empathy if we do i think the possibilities for northern ireland whatever its constitutional position remain huge and we shouldn't lose sight of that which has been achieved through the peace process most of the areas where you're talking about countering extremism where you're talking about terrorism where you're talking about these conflicts would love to end up with the problems that northern ireland considers to be problems and yeah. i think in that sense it's important to have an optimistic sense of what's been achieved as well as recognizing the kinds of profound problem that you've been asking me about thank you for that really upbeat conclusion because 
I have to say, you know, I've been increasingly depressed observing Northern Ireland, particularly since 2016 or even before it, when David Cameron announced the referendum. I immediately I felt this was going to be a huge problem for Northern Ireland. And so it has transpired. But I think you're right to put it in context and to look at how far we have come. And, you know, I do think that um, the Good Friday Agreement is an excellent basis. As we said at the beginning, it's not without its flaws. But what agreement is perfect, you know, but it does provide an excellent basis for a continued peace process because it is an ongoing process and will probably be ongoing for many decades to come. But your upbeat, positive perspective, I think, is really important for us to remember how much has been achieved and how far we have come. When we look at other conflict regions, I think it's fair to say that Northern Ireland has achieved a huge amount. So thank you for your uh, expertise and for your continued work in this Space. I think um, uh, cold, cool, objective analysis is so important and actually informs the political debate around all of this as well. So your work is extremely important and we really do appreciate you taking the time to share your expertise and analysis with us today. So thank you so much. And I very much look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thanks very much, Lucinda. I look forward to it as well. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion. Please don't forget to like, comment on, and share this episode. You can find out more about Fighting Terror and the Counter-Extremism Project on Twitter using our handle at Fight Extremism and on the homepage of our website.